1: there's something very ugly about the beauty industry. From packaging to supply chain to ingredients, much if not most of what we buy does harm to our skin, health, and the planet. Yet with the right vision and execution, this industry can transform itself to become something that serves all three. Changing such a deeply embedded and powerful industry isn't easy. And that's why I'm so excited today to chat to a global business leader taking the industry head on you'll learn how to stand up a disruptive startup at scale and build a supply chain culture and products that truly serve all stakeholders. So if you've ever wondered how to disrupt your industry and drive outsized success, don't miss this interview. Let's dive in. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead With We. I'm Simon Mattering and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by Pascal Udeye, the CEO of Envion, a collective of premium and prestige beauty brands committed to stark honesty, co-creation and making a sustainable cultural impact. And we'll discuss how to plan, launch and disrupt an entire industry to bring about much needed best practices to scale. And how to maintain your integrity, grow your business and increase your impact even in these turbulent times So, Pascal, welcome to Lead with We. Hello, Simon. Great to be here. So, Pascal, I'd love to give people a sense of your background first, and I'll tell you why. A lot of the guests that we've had on the show work for social enterprises or they're founders of new companies where you're given a permission to show up differently and to sort of disrupt industries but you come from a very strong corporate background and now you're turning the beauty industry on its head. So give us a sense of where you came from and also what was that moment that really compelled you to take on the beauty industry? Listen, you
0: know, I mean, I've been working for 20 years for Procter & Gamble, uh, starting in France and in Geneva, then in Cincinnati. And then um, after 18 years, they sent me in Morocco, in Casablanca, to run basically all their business, That's where a lot of things came to my mind, that actually when you have power, you have a responsibility to change things. We were basically close to people who were having nothing. The minimum average uh, earning was uh, 200 euros per month, and you had the highest poverty close to the most rich people. And as a consequence, I felt a compelling need to change the purpose of my life, which is not only to become an achiever and succeed in business, but actually to make a difference in people's life and community, which I started actually in Morocco.
1: I love that because I think a lot of the dialogue is around now personal purpose and how you bring that to a company's purpose. But what you're saying is you want to leverage the company to give more meaning to your personal purpose.
0: Yeah, too many people are basically putting, you know, Chinese wall between their professional life and their personal life. I do not believe in work-life balance. I believe in work-life integration. What does it mean is that you leverage you know, your company, you leverage your power and your position and all the resources that you have to enable a real change and a meaningful change.
1: It's a unique circumstance that you're in because I think large companies typically excuse themselves. They say, we've got a legacy mindset or we've got all this inertia or complexity or we've got an answer to the stock market. We can't move as quickly as you want us to change. Yet, what Orvion is doing is really disrupting very aggressively the industry. So where did that permission come from? Did it come from you as a leader who came in and said, this is the new normal? Or did it come from the private equity folks who made the company possible? Or did it come from just, you know, the industry just needed it at this moment in time? What drove that shift? Well,
0: it comes from my strong belief that you, in order to, to, to change reality, you need to face reality. I'm running a business which is in makeup in the beauty industry, and this industry is basically a dirty industry. And as a consequence, I decided to face that and to propose an alternative. So it came from the vision that I, I basically created mid-2021 when I founded this Orve company to welcome three, you know, makeup brands. And I can elaborate on the vision of this company if you want.
1: Yeah, so. Tell us about those three brands and then the overarching vision of the company.
0: So the three brands are uh, three well-known brands. One is Bare Minerals. This brand was founded in 1996 as the very first clean beauty makeup. That was a brand who basically takes some natural ingredients and sourced natural ingredients in order to make, you know, a cleaner foundation or a cleaner product for SPF. Bare was was inventor of mineral SPF. That means you don't put chemicals in order to protect from the sun, but you use minerals like little stone that reflect the light. And these little stones are good for your skin. And even though they go in your ecosystem, they are basically good for your health. The second brand is Laura Mercier, a premium French makeup artist brand. And the third one is Buxom a brand we invented the plum technology for the lips, mainly targeted at millennials. And when I looked at these three brands, Simon, to your question, I basically designed a vision, which is a vision of sustainable face care experts in order to welcome these three brands in a collective. This vision is very simple. It's based on sustainability, because as I said, the makeup industry is not a clean industry. Let me elaborate on that. When you look at lipstick, do you know, Simon, what are the top two criteria for purchase in a store in the US?
1: Now, I should know this because my wife is a makeup artist and bah, I failed dismally. What okay. are they?
0: Criteria number one, the weight of the lipstick. If it's heavy, it's great quality lipstick. Criteria number two, the noise that it makes when you open it. If the click is loud, must be great quality. And only criteria number three is the color and the galenic you feel on your lips. What does it tell you? The main players of the beauty industry are adding metal in the lipstick to make it heavier, which is totally against carbon footprint. Second, they put magnets in order to make a strong noise when you open it, which is really bad when you reject that in the environment. As a consequence, I decided to call that out with Orveon and to go for a sustainable approach to that, removing all of this lead that is in the lipstick and making sure that we're proposing new products which are sourced with natural ingredients and are basically proposing something which is improving the health of people in a healthy planet. That's the sustainability part. Then we focus on the face. It's a choice. We are not a beauty company. We don't focus on the hair or the teeth. We focus on the face. And we focus on basically on the care of the face, including some skincare elements in the makeup. It's called skinification of makeup. What does it mean? We take some biomimetic ingredients which are in your body. Best example is hyaluronic acid or collagen. This is something that you can only find in your body. And in order to have good, healthy skin, you don't put chemicals on that. You basically recreate collagen and hyaluronic acid. And you put that in your product. And then, of course, it's about the expertise from cleaning the skin to basically protecting the skin. So sustainable face care expert with a key focus from Orveon in changing, actually, the way we look at environmental approaches in beauty. I,
1: I love how hardworking every word is. I mean... To be a brand today that's not only going to make a difference but stand out from competitors, you have to be so choiceful in the words you make and make sure that each is invested with meaning as deeply as possible. I think there's many of us out there that would love to take any industry by the scruff of the neck and shake it and reinvent it. How did you go about this process? Was it a hard pitch to the private equity folks? I mean, clean beauty, clean food, clean apparel. There's movements underway to that end. But, you know, do you feel like that we're at a moment in time where the private equity world says, yes, we should move forward with this? Or was it a hard sell? Well, first
0: of all, I do not believe in clean beauty, just to be clear. Okay. Clean beauty means everything and nothing. Clean beauty was invented in the mid-90s. If I go in, the, in New York, in Cincinnati, in San Francisco and ask people in the street, what does it mean, clean beauty? One person's going to tell me vegan. Another one will tell me cruelty free. Another one will say, made with natural ingredients. By the way, natural ingredients can kill people. Poison is made out of natural ingredients. So it means everything and nothing now, 30 years later. I believe in pure beauty. Clean beauty is dead. Long live pure beauty. What does, so what mean? does that mean? Yeah, let us know. Yeah. It's very simple. Let me use a metaphor. The metaphor of water, you know. Clean water, you know, in Africa, is basically muddy water that you basically clean in order for you to either drink it or use it for domestic purpose? Yep. Pure water is pure water. Which one do you want to drink, Simon? Pure water or clean water? Right. Pure. You want to drink pure water. Yep. So I believe in pure beauty. I believe in going for the purest form of ingredients in order to change the deal. And I'm pushing obsolete clean beauty and to move to a next level.
1: And so when so you chose these three brands because of their... Pure Beauty credentials. Do you find that each one has certain positives or assets, but they all have certain challenges depending on their journey over the last couple of decades? So did you have to kind of level up each one of those brands to meet this new vision?
0: Yeah, let's be uh, very humble. You know, Orveon is a human-sized company. We are not a multi-billion dollar company. So as a consequence, we need to humbly bring you know, our stone to the building of this new direction of sustainability. A little bit like this little colibri, which is trying to extinguish a fire, going back and forth with water and is big. So what do we do? We basically take every innovation we put on the market in order to increase the sustainability of our products. And we have five different criterias that I will not go into details from, you know, the ingredients, from the packaging, from the transportation, carbon footprint, etc. And we need to meet at least two of these criteria, for me, in our innovation committee to approve the fact that we put it on the market. One innovation at a time. And given that around 25 to 30% of the turnover is coming from innovation, it's gonna take the company around three years in order to change 100% of the products in the market to be totally, you know, poor. That means that it doesn't come overnight. And if anybody is telling you, you know, I do that overnight, it's greenwashing. It's yeah. bullshit.
1: Yeah, The reality is that it takes time, it takes intent, and that's what we're doing. And you used a really interesting word a moment ago, humble. What's resonated so deeply with me in terms of you as a leader, Pascal, is how unapologetic you are about this. I get up there and I speak around the world, around businesses of a force for good, and I'm not angry. I'm just passionate because we are out of time and we are poisoning ourselves and so on. I read that you describe yourself as a humble, benevolent activist, and I think it's really powerful for other change leaders out there to understand how they can show up in the world. So help me understand what that means, humble, benevolent activist.
0: I was thinking about this term activist, and uh, in my previous life, an activist investor is a guy who comes on the board and basically, you know, restructure everything. So you don't like these activist people. And when you add actually the adjective of benevolent in front of it, it brings a very nice tension. It's like scientific nature. You know, when you bring two words, which are basically almost in opposition, it creates something in the brain of people. So I thought about this benevolent activism. That means you're a force of good. You're shaking the tree. You don't accept the status quo, but you do that with always good in mind and when you think about it, you know some of what we do is for the environment. And I would argue that one of my brands, which is Bear Mineral, is working more on the healthy planet part. And some of it is for the people. That means sustainable living. And when I think of Laura Mercier, what it is, it's a makeup artist brand. So we are basically going in the most remote markets in the world and we are teaching women without a revenue, without a job, how to do makeup and to have a minimum wage to have a sustainable living. Sustainability is healthy people in a healthy world. You need to think about both, not only the planet, but also the people.
1: The people as well. And I've got to ask you, it's one thing to have that intent, and practice can be very different. You've got the tension of managing Laura Mercier and, and Buxom and, and, and Bear Minerals. You've got a very, very challenging and changing world. You've got to deal with private equity partners you know, through your partners at Advent. What's that been like in practice? Is there any calibration, any challenges you found as a leader that you might part, you know, pass on to us?
0: I didn't find a huge barrier when I started to work on this vision mid-2021 when we were in the due diligence of acquisition with, our, uh, with, with Advent as a private equity. They bought into the sustainable face care expert vision immediately. They bought into the idea of creating you know, Orveon as a company, I created this company from scratch with the vision that I just explained. And they were actually nurturing, via investing in this vision that wants to make a positive impact on the world. I believe that a lot of private equity understand that there is no chance to basically survive. Look at, <laughs> it's 22 degrees Celsius today, November in New York. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Everybody is basically committed to their share. And now, you know, in the past, you were having listed company or, you know, family businesses. Today, the most powerful, you know, financial institutions are not listed company or actually family businesses. They are private equities. And as a consequence, they need a share. And they basically do that through people like you or me, through leaders who want to basically change things
1: for the better. Yeah. No, couldn't agree more. And standing up a company like this is very challenging. I mean, you've, got, you've inherited some employees from Shoshado, your parent company, you've brought these three brands, you've got a, a merger and acquisition strategy ahead of you. Tell us what that, it's only been like 18 months that the company has been around. So give us a sense of what that journey has been like because, and also the size of the company, because it's, it's astonishing how large you are when you're so young. The company is the, not even
0: 18 months, uh, we started December 6, 2021. So we're going to basically celebrate our first year in a few weeks. The company is half a billion dollar revenue, probably gross sales of $800 million. It's 2,000 employees globally present in 30 countries in the world. Biggest market are the US, the UK and Japan. I mean, it was a journey which was crazy because we bought the brand, but we didn't have a company. So think about it, my first step was to open a bank account, just a bank account. The second step was to recruit 500 employees from the outside, 500, because we inherited legacy people of 1,500 employees. The other challenge was to create, you know, all the back office with uh, SAP, with uh, ERP systems in order for me just to buy raw materials and to basically invoice my retailers. So it's a true entrepreneurship endeavor that we, we took. And I even had to recruit the 10 members of my executive committee one by one. So it's a new company, it's a new vision and fresh vision about how you can drive beauty in the future with a team which is very motivated to make a difference.
1: It's amazing. It's entrepreneurship on a very aggressive and elevated scale. And I have to imagine that integrating the cultures of each one of those companies is always a thing. You know, whether it's a seventh generation and Unilever or whatever it might be, there's always, you know, do you download from the mothership, uh, the parent company? Do you upload from the brand? What's that dynamic been like?
0: It's not easy because what I discovered is that each of the brands, which were little companies, were operating in total silos. So in order to create back-office synergies and in order to create one company culture, I had to make sure that people were buying into this vision of sustainable face care experts. So my first work has been to make sure that we talk with every single employee and basically make sure that they buy into the vision for the future. If they were not, we have another value in the company, which is called Stark Honesty.
1: Start we added, honesty we,
0: okay. we added start to honesty. Mm. We believe that telling the truth to people is respecting them so that they can make the right choice for their life and their work. So we told them we are not c We told them we are not L'Oreal. We are not PNG. We told them we are human-sized company. We told them that we want to make a difference. And if they wanted to be there and do a nine-to-five and not be entrepreneurs, it was not their company. And we're helping them to exit but the people who stay, they feel they're on a mission. So that's the, what we did.
1: Yeah, it's so important what you're saying because, you know, often people think, you know, purpose is a codification of your the integrity of your intent and it sort of sits on a page. But what you're describing is how it can be put to work for you to attract the talent you need. So if you've got to hire 500 employees, how important was your purpose to that? And then how did you go about sharing that? Any, any specifics you could share with us?
0: But what we did is that when we created the company, we had to explain what is our way. We had to explain what is sustainable face care expert vision. We, we had to explain what were our values of solidarity, stark honesty, and benevolent activism. It's not only put, putting out there on the website. It's making sure that when we recruit people, we don't only recruit people for their experience, and skills, but for their values. And I put a big premium when I interview people on their values. If they are not aligned with our values, I mean, they don't come in because, you know, we, we don't have time. I mean, I mean, we don't have time to make a difference.
1: Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree, Pascal. I mean, in 12 years of we first, the number one, I think I look for when we hire somebody is passion for this work, because you can't teach someone to be passionate. They can learn the skills and so on, but they have to be passionate. Another word that, you know, and again, I, I love how intentional your use of language is. You talked about it not being a portfolio, but being a collective. What, why is that distinction important and what does it mean?
0: We don't look at ourselves as a group. We don't look at ourselves as a firm. We don't look at ourselves as a company. We look at ourselves as a collective of changemaker brands. What does it mean? It means that we are putting together different propositions to make a difference. I mean, from a business standpoint, this proposition of a a different level of pricing or a different level of positioning. But as I said, for instance, Bear Mineral is here to make a difference from the environment, from a planet standpoint. Laura Mercier is there to make a difference at the human standpoint. So every single brand is having a different purpose and we put that into a collective, what does it mean? The traditional way of looking at a company is a pyramid. You have a roof, which is, you know, the company, and then you have different brands below. That's the way all the big national are, are done. You have the house of L'Oreal, p Colgate, Unilever. But that's a very traditional 90s way of looking at it, because then that puts, you know, the brands and the categories in silo. What we've done is that we created a bit like what you have behind yeah, you. the
1: Orveon logo. This, there, like the Orvian logo, yeah.
0: which is a collective, and we have the brands mm-hmm. in the middle, and the values of Orveon is infusing the brand, but the values of the brand are infusing Orveon. So it's an ecosystem with an exchange. Yeah. And that came from my idea that I'm an observer of the skin. Mm-hmm. The skin is one of the most fascinating ecosystems because it's basically something that is lively. It closes when it's warm, when there is sun, when it's raining, it's opening when you run and you need to sweat. And this is regulating basically what you do between the interior of your ecosystem and the external ecosystem. We created a company like an ecosystem, not like a pyramid, but actually very flat, and with different departments that are living and, and, and working like that. Right.
1: Interesting. Yeah, the skin is the what the biggest organ in the human body, I, I, I believe. And, it is. And, it is. And, and what is so interesting to me, my, my, my makeup art of why so I've learned something over the last dozen years or so. Um, one of the things that fascinates me is how do you scale this vision that's in your head and these different dynamics and your use of language through an organization that's already so large and growing and has a global footprint? Because one of the challenges of a founder or an entrepreneur or a new company is to take that vision to scale. So how do you make sure that everybody embraces and embodies it?
0: It's a combination of traditional uh, deployment and uh, less traditional adoption. I do not believe in deployment. I believe in adoption. I do not see myself as a CEO. I see myself as a social architect. What does it mean? I'm just back from three weeks in the markets, in Europe, in Middle East, and in Asia. I believe in walking the floor. I believe in meeting the employees, having breakfast with them, town hall in each country, going in the store with them, meeting consumers in their homes with them, listening to them, and sharing formally and informally the vision to make sure they understand it. And they can make the choice, which is, do I want to be part of that or I don't?
1: You want people to be in. I want people to understand because we're sort of just moving forward with this idea of pure beauty just how ripe the beauty industry was for change. I don't think people realize just how harmful some of the ingredients and the products that everyone, men and women, use every day can be to the body. Give us a sense of just how dramatic that need for change is. Uh, I I
0: believe that the industry is slowly but surely changing, but I don't feel the sense of urgency. When you're a multi 1000000000 dollar company and you have 100 plants throughout the world, your hands are bound. And you basically cannot get rid of the capital investment you've done. So it's, they are slow to change. So they, there is a lot of speech. There is a lot of greenwashing. But in action, except on carbon footprint, in, when you look at ingredients, actually, and you go to the source of ingredients, you still have some nanoparticles that are not good for your ecosystem of your body that go through your skin. And it's difficult for them to change. It's easier for company outside. We can reinvent ourselves with speed and agility because we are small. I have zero plans. My activity system was very simple. I got rid of any plans that I can work with any contract manufacturer to do what I want in formulation.
1: So let me ask you about that, because I think the three industries on the hook are energy, textile, and food, and close behind beauty. How do you do that upstream with your supply chain? Are there enough suppliers out there that hold themselves to the same standard, or did you need to stand up new suppliers and support them and give them contracts that would allow them to kind of meet your needs. How does that work as particularly at your scale?
0: It's, it's very interesting. When we, we started the company, you know, we inherited one plant and a few a contract manufacturer. We got rid of the plants and we qualified 34 contract manufacturers from the U S Europe and Asia. And we had a specific, you know, guidelines in order for them to meet, you know, certain criteria on sustainability sourcing, labor laws, etc., And uh, we can talk that in more details, but you know, at the end of the day, we need to ensure that certain ingredients are coming from regions region where it's ethical standards that are used and it's not easy. So I had to send my chief procurement officer, my chief science officer around the globe, qualifying them one by one behind the charter that we put together. And I'm... it's like traveling, meeting them, going in their plants, looking at the sourcing of their raw materials. And I can tell you that today I have 34. In a year, I probably move to 25 because I'm going to discover something that I don't like.
1: A question to build on that is, it's one thing to create new suppliers and new products. It's another to convince consumers to be more choiceful in the products they buy, especially when it comes to something so personal and so deep within their loyalty to these iconic beauty brands that kind of, they invest or project themselves into these elevated you know, fashion brands, shall we say. So how do you educate consumers to enable your business to thrive by telling them what's different about your products?
0: What I find fascinating, Simon, is that there is a clear evolution that has been accelerated by COVID consciousness about the consumer habits. The world of beauty, which was in the 19s about appearance, it was about, you know, uh, because I'm worth it. I want to look beautiful. Is over. People now they want to feel great. That's the difference between appearance and the reality of who you are inside. And that's why I do not believe that beauty companies have other potential. I believe that wellness companies have potential. And we got to blur beauty with wellness and potentially with health. You know, now beauty products can claim some wellness claims. And very fast, you know, you're going to have medical device type A who will be present in makeup and in beauty products and will basically move to improvement of the health of the skin and of the body. So there is a clear evolution of the consumer needs, uh, which is driven not only by the media, but by the fact that people want to feel good in their skin, if I can use this play on word.
1: Yeah, no, I have to say, my my wife said to me years ago that The most beautiful skin is healthy skin. You know, it's just allowing the skin to do what it does naturally. And let me ask you, in order for this transition to be effective, you know, you need to convince consumers that what you're stating is actually true, which makes the traceability of ingredients so important. So how do you communicate that even to your internal stakeholders like employees, as well as to consumers?
0: What I find fascinating now is that it's not what you say to consumer which matters. It's what you are. So even your question is not the right statement, if I may say so, Simon. Yeah, of course, of course. Consumers are one, not stupid. Second, they don't want to be called cool consumer anymore. They are human beings and they want to see the bullshit behind the brand. What does it mean? They use apps in Europe, you know, Yuka for example, is just normal. You just basically take any product with your phone, you look at the barcode and then you know exactly what you have in the product. Yuka is coming in the US as we speak. There are some... Some of that, you know, existing in Korea for skincare and in Japan since years. Consumers are educated. So it's not what you tell them that matters. It's what you do.
1: Right. No, I actually think that's absolutely right. Like, you know, when, when we talk to clients, we sort of say to them, you know, you define their purpose, their positioning, their voice, their values, and so on. And you say, you know what? This is going to fail in the end, the authenticity of your execution. If you're doing it for real. That will resonate with your employees. It'll resonate with your consumer and so on. So I really think it's the integrity of your intent. So let me ask you about that. There are pressures that come with going into new markets, acquiring new companies, releasing new products, dealing with this world that's changing all around us. How do you make sure everyone stays on track? Is it through quarterly meetings? Is it monthly stand-ups? Is it purpose, handbooks, what do you do to make sure that there are guidelines and guardrails for everyone inside Orbeon its brands?
0: It's a bit of everything you said. We are a young company, so we are doing, you know, monthly town halls with our 2,000 employees. And then, you know, each of my executive committee members are basically doing in their respective brands, function, or country, some specific town halls. And then when we travel, we talk with the employee in a more intimate way. Because at the end, you know, people don't remember big tunnels, big numbers, big shows. They remember the authenticities of what we tell them in storytelling and they remember what they do. Because at the end of the day, that's not what I do, what matters. It's what my 2000 employees are doing every
1: day. Right. And also, it also matters what a company is doing in its supply chain. Like, what it's not just what materials they're providing you with, it's how you're treating those people in your supply chain. So, talk to me about how you make sure those all the values flow upstream.
0: But it's, it's exactly like uh, for the raw material suppliers. Our contract manufacturers, you know, are basically qualified by my chief supply chain officer according to a very specific charter, and they need to basically abide by certain things. They need to make sure that they are sourcing ingredients with a proper replenishment. They need to have, uh, you know, the proper uh, sourcing uh, and uh, of processing, we need to have uh, raw material tracing, we need to have, uh, you know, specific heat maps to identify the greater risk, you know, for example, of modern slavery, and we go to that, et cetera. So we have different criteria to basically select our contract manufacturers. And if they don't abide by that, there are 100, 200, 2,000 want to work with us. That basically, we, we have the choice to go with who we want even to qualify them. Because imagine a brand like Berminero deciding to give one contract manufacturer one of his biggest selling SKU makes a huge difference and can basically double the turnover of a company. So we are creating purpose led contract manufacturer via giving them, you know, some some of our production.
1: I love that. It's sort of, you know, your purpose doesn't just apply to your Parent company or to downstream, but you're actually creating companies with the same integrity upstream. I want to point downstream again to your companies now. You know, you mentioned before that they each play a different role, some in terms of diversity and so on, but they're all an expression of pure beauty. Can you give us a sense of? how each one is a movement in their own right? Because we first, we think about it as like a movement of movements. You've got the enterprise, which is all about pure beauty in your case. And then each one of the brands, Bear Minerals or Laurie Mercier or or Buxom are doing different jobs. What are each one doing?
0: Okay. So Bear Minerals is basically standing for a clean, equal brand. It's a clear word. Imagine clean and clinical studies in one word, clean, equal. What does it mean? It's a brand that was, as I said, invented in 1996 and inventing the clean beauty positioning via using raw material that were sourced from nature, mainly minerals, in order to create some foundation, some makeup product that were not coming from chemical ingredients. So we continue on that, but we are moving into clinical studies so that we are helping the skin especially sensitive skin, to basically healthy skin, like your wife is saying, Simon. Yeah. You know, it's very simple. We are creating products that are leaving the skin to breathe, that is not oily, that is not, you know, blocking the pores of the skin so that you have pimples and acne, etc. So the positioning of Bare Minerol is a clean, equal brand that is helping, you know, the health of the skin in an environmental that's basically the positioning of Minerals. Laura Mercier is totally different because it's a French premium makeup artist brand. So it's more about the human size. It's more about how you basically help a community of global makeup artists to thrive and have a sustainable living. How can we teach them the gesture, the way to do something which is basically making a difference in their life and the community we live in? And the last brand is called Buxom. It's a brand which is targeted towards more millennials, an unapologetically sexy brand that is basically helping young women to show the world who they are. Let me give you an example. You know, in certain markets in the world, it's still difficult for women to speak up in a world dominated by men. The way they will use Buxom will tell the world without them speaking, that's who I am. So it's about self-affirmation, about being who you, you are. So one is on environment and healthy planet. One is on the human being and healthy people. And the third one is more about a diversity and inclusion position.
1: And, you know, when it comes to this storytelling through each of those three lenses, how do you stand out from all of that greenwashing? I mean, I think we've seen the ESG space, sustainability space, diversity space blow up. And there are those who are doing it authentically and those who are just sort of managing the optics of it. How do you tell the story in a way that consumers go, no, this is a different sort of situation?
0: But well, first of all, we tell very few stories because we don't do advertisement in TV, etc. But we try to engage and create a personal bond, a human bond with our the human being that we serve. So right. we do that via, you know, CRM. And CRM, the important part, is our relationship, how you basically do consumer relationship management, how you create a relationship with consumers that can check what we're seeing, that can use your applications application and check what are the ingredients that we are doing, how we are sourcing our raw material, how we are manufacturing, how we are transporting, etc. So we're trying to give as much transparency as we can on a, to, to our end user so that they can basically be part of our tribe, be part of our community. Right.
1: right, And obviously one of the biggest sort of challenges in the beauty industry is packaging across the board for every company. How do you begin to take that on? Because the ingredients are one thing, but the packaging is another.
0: Well, the good news is that there is a carton shortage. So it's got to basically regulate by itself. But jokes apart, uh, the reality is that we are working on recyclability of carton. Mm -hmm. We are using only on FSC packaging, of course. And third, we are even looking at removing totally secondary package on certain of our brands, like Bergson. We are working as we speak with one of the biggest, you know, consultants in the world journey in order to remove packaging totally and move from plastic, even recy- recyclable plastic to glass, you know, on certain of our SKUs. So that's what we do. I do not believe we can do that overnight. It's going to take
1: a bit of time. As I said, two to three years, but we will do it. Yeah. And any disruptor, especially at this scale, gets the attention of very large and established and powerful competitors out there. So you're a very strong voice. The company has a strong point of view. Do you feel resistance from the industry or do you feel, oh, wow, you put them on notice and they have to change what they're doing and it's leveling up the whole industry?
0: Well, let me tell you a story. Three months ago, I was in Miami for one of the biggest beauty CEO summit in the world. And there were all the... all my peers, all the CEO, you know, of the beauty industry in the room. And I was on stage to present Orvian, And I started by saying, you know, I believe we work in a dirty industry and it's high time that we're changing that. And in the room, I had half of the room nodding and half of the room like, what is he saying? So that's probably the reality, Simon. It means that there is a general understanding and acknowledgement that we need to change. Some companies have the capability to change fast. Some others are bound by their investment and their footprint, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I do not not think that any rightful leader in beauty today is resisting this change. It's more how fast they go about it and how purpose-driven they are. But, you know, I don't see anybody resisting it anymore like five years ago.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. And I mean... You're right in the sense that if you succeed alone, you fail because others are still doing the wrong thing. If you succeed too late, you fail because we've got to fix these things sooner. So is there any opportunity for like pre-competitive collaboration or working between companies with suppliers to get the whole industry kind of back more into that pure beauty space?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That we have a lot of different beauty association and industry association that are working together. I used to live in France and be part of the French Beauty Federation and we are working on a lot of solutions, you know, doing that. I must admit there is different awareness and sense of urgency per market. Right. Even the laws between the European Committee, the U.S. or Asia, you know, are massively different. Can you actually, yeah,
1: break those out, break those out. How is APAC and EMEA and North America different? I'd love to hear that.
0: There is first a push for uh, all the legislators to go in the right direction, driven mainly by health, for example, health of the skin, making sure we have the right product, you know, the right ingredients that are properly vetted and labeled in order to uh, avoid any danger of certain ingredients. That's point number one. So health is driving that, you know, the FDA or the European Community Health Association, et cetera. And as a consequence, after that, you have industry associations in beauty that are taking the laws and sometimes in certain regions going beyond the laws because we believe that indeed we need to accelerate things on nanoparticles. So for instance, nanoparticles is far more advanced in Europe than it is in the US. Now, maybe the US will be more advanced on recycling, refillability, and other things. So every region is different but I think that there is a healthy competition between the different legislators in order to advance the topic.
1: So is there a role for the company to actually play an advocacy role with regulators and go to DC and help to change the industry so that it can support your efforts?
0: Yeah, yeah. there is a lot of positive lobby, actually, or positive association that are pushing in the right direction in terms of, you know, not only, you know, the sourcing of okay. ingredients moving from, you know, chemical to naturally produced ingredients and, and, you know, working on, on the right packaging, recyclability, putting in place some laws that will basically compel some people who are not doing the right thing to go in that direction. And the more we are going there, the more it makes economic sense. Because for a lot of people, you know, environment investment is linked to negative EBDA or negative profit. It's exactly the opposite. Point number one, when you remove things, you make more money. Point number two, when the industry is moving together, you have an economies of scale, which makes actually the price go down for everybody. And at the end, the consumer is benefiting from a more healthy, more environmental friendly and better price. So there is a lot of consciousness about that.
1: Right. Right. And I mean, you've had, as you say, roughly a year or so to kind of integrate these companies, to bring this vision to life, to kind of deploy in different markets. What are some of the challenges? I mean, there's a lot of wind behind your back, but, you know, are there any sort of learnings you've had in the last year that you might share with us? Because we're all, we're all aspiring to make a difference through business.
0: But, you know, the biggest challenge that any industry has had for the past 12 months was supply, to be fair. Right. If you, if you think about it, you know, post-COVID, we had problem of raw materials, we had problem of packaging materials, we had problem on transportation, etc which could pull back actually the best effort from any company to be a good citizen. So what has been very important for me as a leader of a purpose-driven company is to make sure that the supply issues, we are not basically changing our unwavering commitment to do the right thing. And that's very important because, you know, it's easy to do the easier wrong. It's tougher to do the tougher right. Right.
1: Right. And, I want to push on that a little bit because peculiar to this, especially in the North America, inflation and the recession and so on, I hear this sort of false separation between purpose and profit coming back where people say, well, now there's downward pressure on the stock price or we're entering a recession, we're going to have to just lean into our business and move product just to survive, thinking that their purpose won't drive growth. So what would you tell purpose-driven companies or leaders who are saying, wow, we're going to have to compromise or pull back on our purpose because of the economic situation?
0: I cannot give advice for, uh, you know, other companies. I can't tell you what we're going to do at Orveon. At Orveon, we're going to double down on our purpose because in a moment where actually consumers are more budget constraints, they want to get better value for money. And what is value for money? is the benefit you get multiplied by the brand equity divided by the price. The benefit you get is not only, you know, more moisturization of your skin is basically also the emotional benefit of doing the right thing. Is making sure that what you put on your skin is good for your skin and good for your body and the ecosystem of your body. So making sure that we double down on explaining what we do, that people say, yeah, it's right for me and it's actually good value for money for me, will make a big difference. So it's not about basically price, it's about value.
1: And, you know, I want to actually build on that as well. I think, you know, as more and more consumers become more and more conscious of the impact of what they're buying and choiceful about what brands they support, the greater integrity a company like yours or anyone has will actually drive their growth because the audience is rising to meet the integrity that you're bringing to the marketplace. So, you know, counterintuitively, I think a lot of people sort of shy away from their purpose sometimes when they're worried about their bottom line. But we're in a market where you're going to be rewarded more highly for doing that. And I just wish more folks would be clearer about that and know in their hearts that to be true. So, you know, Pascal, what is the vision of beauty? You know, what's your what does the future of beauty look like for you in the next, let's say, five years? I mean, you're already disrupting the industry. You've stood up a very large young company. If you project five years down the track, what's it going to look like?
0: I believe that beauty is moving to wellness and wellness is moving to health. Health. And that the boundaries and the silo between beauty, wellness, and health will be totally blurred. So that at the end of the day, you will not only want to look beautiful, but you want to feel and be healthy and feel good in your skin. So... You know, I think that legislation will change between what you can claim, what you can do, etc. You will have some commons coming into the beauty industry. It will be about what you put on your skin, your hair, and what you put inside your body. And you will have a combination of all of that. And beauty company will basically take care of your beauty inside and the beauty outside and the beauty of the planet. Everything will be linked. You will want to basically be fully aligned between what you put inside your body, what you put on your body, and what you put in your community. That's what I believe will happen, and it's already happening. It will just be an acceleration.
1: And what surprises can we expect from you and all the next few years? Anything you can share?
0: Oh, my God. I mean, uh, you, will, you will leave it, Simon, but uh, <laughs> you will basically see us being on the forefront of this evolution from beauty to wellness to health,
1: and uh, more to come in one year. Fantastic. Well, Pascal, thank you for taking on an industry which is long overdue for change, and for raising the bar for everyone you know in the industry, so that we can all look take better care of ourselves, our health, our, our larger well being, and then ultimately, you know, celebrate pure beauty in the truest sense. So, thank you for the insights and uh, for what you're doing at Orbeon.
0: Thanks a lot for having Orbeon You know, today, Simon, it was a pleasure to speak with you again and. Congratulations for the, the the fight that you're doing. We are together
1: on that. Fantastic. Thank you, Pascal. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead With We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with Weed, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.